Well, that's a classic movie scene. I'm sure many of you have seen or are watching this Christmas season uh, from the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Now, normally when I'm watching that scene at the very end, uh, you, I'm kind of focused on all the commotion that's happening there uh, as all these people are filling George Bailey's house. But this week I started paying attention to the words that this whole group is singing. They're singing the gospel. They're singing about Jesus. That, that's what they're singing about. They're singing the exact, what they're singing is almost the exact same good news that a multitude of angels sang to shepherds outside of Bethlehem the night that Jesus was born. Hear the words again. Think about it. These are remarkable words. Hark, which means listen. I had to look that up. Um, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Those are our great words. The angels are not singing praises to God because George Bailey's friends posted uh, and pooled their money together to, to pay off his debt, okay? That's not what the angels are singing. The angels are singing praises to God because he sent his only son, Jesus, to pay off our debt. <laughs> the angels sing because this newborn King Jesus who was born in Bethlehem has come to, what the song says, reconcile God and sinners, to make what were enemies friends, God and sinners, that there could be peace between God and us. Because of why? Because of the newborn king. And the angels are singing because this, this greatest king ever, born in this manger like the Mitchells read this morning, would grow up without sin, unlike you and me. And then though would suffer for the sins of you and me who belong to God's people. And then that he would then die, and then he would rise from the dead in glory in the most epic victory the creation has ever seen. And then as the, the, the victorious king, Jesus, he, what does he do with the spoils of his victory? He shares them with his people forever. He doesn't hoard them, he shares them with us forever. Forgiveness, Peace with God, life with God forever. That is why the angels sing. And so the, the songwriter here urges us to really, this cool phrase, join the triumph. Join, it's a command. Join this triumph. Join the angels and sing praise and glory to King Jesus. And notice specifically who he instructs to sing these words. All ye nations. All you nations, all the nations can rejoice in Jesus and praise his name, okay? The gospel of Jesus is not to be hoarded or hidden by any one group of people, any one nation. The gospel is to be shared with all nations, with all peoples, celebrated by all peoples. The reality is, though, that as sinful people... If we're honest, we're much more excited to celebrate what God has done for me as an individual than we are excited to share with other people what God has done for them too. 
And even worse, some of us might find that not only are we not excited to share the gospel with others, but in our flesh, our sinful flesh, we're actually resistant to it. Like, we're kind of opposed to sharing the gospel with others. And, and we're resistant to embracing people who are different than us into our gospel community, into our lives and into our church. Well, if, if and when we've, we've noticed that those feelings arise in us, we can't let that sinful resistance win in us, okay? We, we, we have to first acknowledge that, okay, what am, identify I'm feeling this, it's wrong, acknowledge that it's wrong, confess it to God, ask him for help, and then turn away from that and say, I don't wanna follow that, I wanna follow Jesus' way instead. Because the gospel, the good news, is for all types of people, not just you and me. The task that Jesus has given to us, as if we're Christians, is to take the gospel to them, not to hoard it but to take it and to love others. And so we want, hopefully, what God wants. We want all types of people from all the nations to join the triumph and to rise and sing glory to the newborn King Jesus. I hope that's what we want this Christmas season. Well, about 2,000 years ago, um, when this message of salvation in Jesus Christ began to spread throughout all different people groups and all social classes throughout the Roman Empire, Resistance quickly rose up. Re, uh, resistance rose up against sharing the gospel, sharing salvation with certain types of people. And this morning we're going to read about how Paul and Barnabas dealt with that. So if you have your Bible, you can open with me to Acts thirteen thirty-eight. Acts thirteen thirty-eight. Before we read this, let's ask God to, to bless our time. Lord Jesus, uh, we, we need your help. <laughs> we do not want to come to this word just in our flesh or distracted. Um, we want to focus now on you, and we want to be a people who rises together as, as a diverse body of people saved by the grace of God who want to declare, declare glory to your name, God. And so we ask that you'd help us do that. And we thank you for being our savior, for showing us salvation uh, that we can have after this life and that we can have in this life right now, God, and life and friendship and freedom we can have right now with you. So thank you, God, for, for being our God. And I know that this room is filled with people. We all come with different circumstances, different worries, different troubles, different things we're going through. And I pray that you would just be our ever-present help in trouble now. And that you would feed us the word that you've appointed for this day and meet us here. Move here with power, God. Keep away evil from us in all of its forms. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in this passage here, Paul and Barnabas are in this town called uh, Pisidian Antioch. And Paul, who was of the Jewish race, is preaching the gospel to a group of Jews at a synagogue there. Starting in verse 38, Paul tells the Jews, 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by everyone who believes is freed from everything. Oh, so, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So that Sabbath day, that first Sabbath day, many Jewish people, they were excited to hear this, this gospel. And they were excited to hear about what Jesus taught and what he had accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. And it says that many Jews actually followed Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas around all that next week because uh, they could not get enough of this good news about Jesus. And, and then at the end of the week, seven days later, it was the next Sabbath. And verses 44, uh, verse 44 says this, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So while Paul and Barnabas had been teaching the gospel to the Jews that previous week, word was spreading about them and about their message. And this next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathers around the synagogue to hear the word of the Lord. And that was a lot of people, okay? Scholars estimate there were about 50,000 people living in Antioch at that time. And the vast majority of those people were Gentiles. They were not Jews. And so here on the Sabbath day, you have this smaller group of Jews who are meeting in their synagogue to worship every, every Sabbath like they do. And then all of a sudden you've got thousands and thousands of Gentiles outside of the building filling the streets because they too want to hear what Paul and Barnabas have to say. And then look at what verse 45 says. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So when the Jews saw the crowds of Gentiles coming to hear the gospel, what was their first reaction, it says? They were filled with jealousy. Okay. All week they'd enjoyed fellowship with Paul and Barnabas, um, but now when the Gentiles show up to hear this same good news, the Jews are jealous of them. And this sinful resistance to spread the gospel was rising in their hearts. But instead of acknowledging that resistance as, as something that is evil, uh, something that should be repented of, this group of Jews leaned into it. They leaned into those feelings and they allow themselves, it says, to be filled with jealousy. So the Jews were jealous of all of these thousands of Gentiles. Why? Well, most clearly, because the Jews didn't like the Gentiles, obviously, and they didn't want anything to do with the Gentiles, and they didn't want the Gentiles to have anything to do with their God. And many of the Jews took great pride in the fact that God had given them the patriarchs, which he'd had. God had given them the law and the prophets, 
God had led them out of Egypt. The Christ was coming to free the Jews from governmental oppression. And, and that Christ would be their king who would rule forevermore. But as, just as Paul said that previous Sabbath, the Jews and their leaders had interpreted the scriptures wrongly. God had not come to free his people from political bondage, but from spiritual bondage. And God came not only to free the Jews, but also to free the Gentiles, everybody who's not Jewish. God had clearly told this to the Jews over and over in, in their own scriptures, in his word. Even, even when Jesus was dedicated as a baby in the temple, the Holy Spirit th spoke through this godly man named Simeon to declare that Jesus would provide salvation for Jews and Gentiles. Remember Luke 2, 28 to 32 says, he, Simeon, took him, baby Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, talking about himself, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Salvation you have prepared in the presence of who? Of whom? All peoples, Jew and Gentile. Now, as we've seen in the book of Acts, um, we don't want to make this stereotype that, that all ancient Jews strongly resisted Gentiles in their midst. However, for these Jews, we're just looking at this context, in, in Pisidian Antioch, when the time had come for them to be what this passage says, to be the light of revelation for the Gentiles, the Jews wanted nothing to do with it. They, they only really wanted to save themselves. And they were filled with jealousy, in fact, that non-Jews wanted God to save them too. In, in an overwhelming, <laughs> visible manner, right? And according to verse 45, the, the Jews so allowed themselves to be overcome with jealousy that they begin, what did they do? They were so jealous that they contradicted the gospel spoken by Paul. So they suddenly changed their minds about Paul's teaching. They, they told him this gospel was wrong. And, and they resisted this, not because they'd had some new intellectual insight about the message. They resisted the gospel because they were prideful and selfish. And in addition to rejecting the gospel, verse 45 says that the Jews then were reviling Paul. They were hating Paul. They hated him in their hearts for this whole situation, right? They hated Paul for, for coming to Antioch, for, for preaching this gospel, for stirring up their whole town, for insulting the Jews, and now for sharing this gospel with Gentiles who weren't even Jews. Several commentaries I read this week made the same present-day application for us Christians today that we should pay attention to. God, have mercy on us Christians and our churches if ever we hoard the gospel for ourselves and act jealously toward outsiders who come to our church in need of God. God have mercy on us. F.F. Bruce, who's a, who's a man, total academic scholar and did not make many, doesn't make many uh, life applications in his commentaries, says this, Christian pew holders can manifest quite unchristian indignation when they arrive at church on a Sunday morning to find their seats occupied by rank outsiders. And if ever we take offense because someone is in our seat 
or our parking lot, someone new is talking to our friends, then we're acting exactly like the Jews of Pisidian Antioch. And I'm so thankful that that most of you are, are very welcoming and warm to new people who are here to find God. And I pray that our welcome and our warmth here at this body would be more than an inch deep and would be more than mere good manners. I pray that we at Cedar Home would actually be glad to see new people in our seats. I pray that we we would welcome our neighbors and our peers from work and school who might be rough around the edges as if we're not. That's the truth. I hope we never hear, what are you doing here? I pray that we would be excited to see new people get involved in our church family and serve in various ways on Sunday mornings and throughout the week and and not intimidated of them. So how do we, and this isn't, let's be real clear, this is not something unique to this body or anything. This is something, this is something characteristic of, of all churches and can be of all people groups, right? But as Christians, we want to counter these feelings differently. We want to be different. We want to be set apart. And so how do we fight in ourselves any sinful resistances, uh, resistances toward outsiders that, that might emerge in our hearts? How do we avoid becoming just like these Jews in Pisidian Antioch? How do we avoid feeling jealous of new people and insecure about outsiders entering our space in our lives? Well, you have to pray to the Lord and ask him first to search your heart and to show you any wicked way that's in you, just like Psalm 139 says. But that is a prayer many Christians don't want to pray because it's an affront to your pride. Because God's pride, he's going to find something there, right? Because you're not in glory yet. Neither am I. And sadly, many of us are more comfortable staying in our sin, even if we know it's sinful, than seeking holiness, if for no other reason, then staying where we're at in our sin is more comfortable to us. It's familiar. But if we don't want to be like the jealous churchgoers here in today's passage, if, if we really want to be disciples of Jesus who are becoming more like him, then we'll pray to him and start asking questions about ourselves. Like, why am I so insecure? Why are the people who I consider outsiders so threatening to me? Why is the idea of God bringing many more people into my church family unnerving to me? Or the idea of of me talking with people out in the community, inviting them to be part of our, our church family, why am I so resistant to that? Because they're not like us. Quotes. Well, some of us might be thinking, I'm not that way. I'm not that way. I hear that. I'm not that way, thankfully. Well, my guess is that's probably how the Jews felt about themselves, too, in this passage. Because intellectually, they knew that God said in his word that the gospel is for Gentiles also. But when Gentiles actually started showing up at the synagogue, the Jews strongly resisted them. That's when you saw what they really believed. 
And I would just say, may we be aware of allowing ourselves to become like them. Not just on Sunday mornings, but as Christians in our lives throughout the week. So, so why are the people who I consider outsiders so threatening to me? Why, why is this idea of people entering my gospel community, my life, why is that so unnerving to me? Well, maybe it's because we don't truly believe the gospel and its implications. Maybe I'm scared that others are gonna somehow replace me or they're gonna take away my friends from me. Maybe it's because I'm, I functionally, I wouldn't say this, but functionally, I act like this is my turf. And if anyone wants access to my people, they go through me. Maybe I, maybe in our hearts, we have a real disdain for certain types of people. And we don't want to see them here. And we don't want to see them saved. Or maybe I believe God, God loves people like me. I know that. But, and yeah, he loves people like them, but I don't want them here. Right? They're not welcome here, and I'm going to do my best to show them physically through my body language that they're not welcome here. Maybe the reason I'm so insecure is because I don't really understand salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Maybe, and okay, so, so let's dig a little deeper here. And I'm preaching to myself, too, just so you know. Maybe on some subconscious level, I believe that what saves me, what makes me valuable, what makes me loved, is Jesus, yeah, but really, is the friendships I have with specific people here. And, and that they like me. Maybe what really makes me valuable is the influence that I have because I've been here for a long time. Or I've been in this town for a long time. Or, or maybe I, I feel valuable because of the way that I serve the church. I meet this niche and nobody else meets it and so I'm doing it and I can't have that taken away from me. Or maybe I find great value in traditions that I love and hold dear and associate with this place. So maybe, if, if we start, if the Holy Spirit reveals some of this stuff to us, if we're looking for it and asking him to show it to us, maybe I need to really start preaching to myself every day the gospel, that I'm really loved and really accepted by God in Jesus Christ and that's infinitely more valuable than being accepted by people. Maybe I need to start telling myself that my attendance at church, while it's important and, and good, my, the people I know here, all the people I've befriended here, my service to the church adds nothing to the gospel. It adds nothing to my value. Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, and reigning is who makes me valuable. And maybe I need to really check my heart, and we all do at times, <laughs> to see is, is how I'm acting reflective of what I really say I believe? Am I really believing that my salvation 
And my identity in Christ is totally a gift that I don't deserve at all. It's not something either that I can add to or that other people can add to through their affirmation or friendship. Because when I truly believe that salvation in Jesus Christ is by God's grace alone, an undeserved gift of grace, and that I simply appropriate it or accept it through faith alone, and that the whole purpose of salvation in life as a church is for the glory of God alone and not for myself, then when I believe that, I don't have to be jealous of outsiders on my street, in my town, in my school, or at my church. I don't have to be critical of growth and changes that happen as a result of the Holy Spirit graciously calling people to himself through his gospel. And the more that we who trusted Jesus understand how safe and secure we are in Jesus, the more that we will joyfully share the gospel with others and want to see them join the triumph and sing glory to Jesus. It has a horizontal effect. Because when you're so filled with the love of Christ, it just pours out. Well, sadly, this group of Jews here in Pisidian Antioch, they were so jealous of these Gentile outsiders that they, they took it to the next level. They rejected the gospel entirely. They saw Paul as the cause of all this disruption, and they hated him for that. And what you see as we've gone through the Gospel of John and, and uh, this book of Acts, you see leaders time and time again making unethical decisions because of their fear of people, right? That's a common theme. But what you see here is that instead of running away, instead of caving into his haters, verse 46 and 47 says this, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So in other words, Paul and Barnabas is saying, we love you, Jews. We preach the gospel to you first, and we want you to trust in Jesus and be saved. But since you are thrusting Jesus aside, since you are condemning yourselves, we're going to preach the gospel all the more to those who want to hear it. We're going to preach to the Gentiles. And Jesus commanded us to tell them the gospel so that salvation may come to the ends of the earth. And we're not going to let your sinful jealousy and your pride and your divisive behavior stop us from doing the work that Jesus commanded us to do. Strong words. And it didn't go over well. But before we get to that, verse 48 says this. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So, so Paul began to, now to preach to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard that Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross as a substitute for some of them, that, that he rose from the dead to save some of them and from all people groups, it says the, the Gentiles were filled with great joy. They started rejoicing and glorifying the gospel of Jesus. 
Instead of, instead of resisting Paul's message like the Jews had done, the Gentiles were revering the gospel. They embraced it. They, they were overjoyed that God would want people like them, that he would forgive sinners like them, and, and that they could truly be part of God's family too. Verse 48 says that as many were appointed to eternal life believed. It's an interesting way to describe what God was doing among the Gentiles here. Why didn't, why didn't God just have Luke write, and many people believed? Why say as many as were appointed to eternal life believed? Well, I think Luke's, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is tying in this theme of God's sovereignty that has been all through this book of Acts so far. Whether it's Peter's, uh, at the beginning, explaining to the Jews that they were appointed to fulfill God's predestined plan of crucifying Jesus, and that's the term he uses, that, that was God's predestined plan. Or whether it's the Holy Spirit saving massive amounts of people at the same moment and empowering them all to speak in tongues. Or whether it's uh, Peter following the Holy, Sp- uh, the Holy Spirit's lead to, to, to heal that lame beggar and so many other subsequent people who he couldn't do without his own power. Or, or, or whether it's God making the earth quake several times as we've read in Acts, or free the apostles from prison in response to the church's prayers. Or whether it's Christians and non-Christians being struck down by God for resisting him. Or whether it's the Holy Spirit sending out Paul and Barnabas away from Antioch, being sent out by the Holy Spirit to specific places and specific people. What's clear is this, God is clearly the all-powerful leader of this mission. He's the one directing the troops, and he's the one empowering the troops to do what they do. And it's very poignant here, I think, that the, the people appointed to eternal life in this passage, they were appointed, but they were not God's chosen Israelites. And so even at this point in the church, it's, it's become clearer and clearer that God's true people, or true Israel, are those whom God has appointed and saved by grace through faith, not because of one's race or family lineage or good works. And also in this verse, God reiterates that he is sovereign in who he applies Jesus' redemptive work to. Okay. In Pisidian Antioch, only the people whom God had appointed believed the gospel. This word appointed also means enrolled. Okay. And it refers to being enrolled. Whoever was enrolled in the book of life of the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world believed. So how does a person then, okay, how does a person know if God appointed him or her to eternal life? Well, the question is this, does he or she believe Jesus? Does he or she trust in Jesus? If you hear the gospel of Jesus, if you believe it, then God has appointed you to have eternal life, okay? And we don't mean that you simply believe the gospel is true, right? but that you trust in Jesus. He's your hope. He's the one you are trusting in as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life. And so we agree with Paul as he writes this in Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, 
In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And we agree with the Apostle John who writes in John 1, 12 to 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So as the Gentiles heard the gospel, and as they were rejoicing that it was for them, and as they believed it, and they, what happened is they spread this gospel of Jesus and multiplied quickly throughout the whole region. And verses 59 to 50 say, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. So to retaliate against Paul and Barnabas for what they'd done, the Jews stirred up a persecution against them. And probably what happened is this, that the Jews went to the influential women of the city, they convinced them that Paul and Barnabas were troublemakers, and then those influential wives persuaded their influential husbands that Paul and Barnabas were troublemakers, and then all of them the most influential people in the city and whoever they wanted to employ drove Paul and Barnabas out of the city and out of the district. And this is how Paul and Barnabas responded to that. Verse 51 says, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and they went to Iconium. So Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet as a sign, as, as kind of a physical sign against those who rejected Jesus and kind of saying, your blood is on your head. Right? And they did that because that's what Jesus told, told them to do. Shake your, uh, your, the dust off your feet against those who reject the gospel. And then they hiked to this town 90 miles away called Iconium. And then verse 52 says, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So, even though the Jews, I mean, this didn't, this didn't go down probably in a, as they had hoped, but even though the Jews had rejected the gospel, even though uh, they had hated Paul, even though they were jealous of the Gentiles, even though they persecuted Paul and Barnabas and actually chased them out of town, who actually came out on top here? Paul and Barnabas and thousands of new Gentile converts to Christianity. And it says they were filled with joy. And more than that, God, God showed them his blessing by manifesting it this way. He filled them with a special movement of the Holy Spirit. They were, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not with those who reject him. God the Holy Spirit was, is with everyone though who embraces Jesus and trusts in him, whether they're Jew or Gentile. That's good news for us, because most of us in here are Gentile. So this week, you guys, as, as we think about, okay, how does this, how do I bring this down to, a, even more so into my life this week as I, as I head into Christmas, let's pray that God would work out three types of grace in our lives this week. First, let's pray this, that God would fill us with genuine joy in knowing him personally. 
That's what, man, it's amazing when you see that in this book of Acts. People are astonished by the gospel. They rejoice in the gospel. We see that a lot in people who are brand new Christians and over time there's just this danger of that fire getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Lord, throw the fuel in the fire of my heart for you. Let's pray that we would be filled with this genuine joy by, by trusting in Jesus' life and death and resurrection for us and that we're reconciled with God because of Jesus, not because of us. And we rejoice in that awesome truth. How do you do that? Well, I think in a practical way, I would encourage you if you're the head of the house too, man, pick up either one of these free little devotionals we have this week, read through, and, and maybe read that through with your family, you know, or by yourself, whatever you need to do, but um, read Luke 2 this week. Um, confess sin to God this week. Thank God that all of it is wiped away because of Jesus. Thank God that your past isn't just wiped away, but that your present and future is filled with Jesus. And that whatever you're going through this week, he's with you because of what he did for you. Second, let's pray that God would, would fill us with a genuine concern, a genuine concern for the people around us this Christmas season. Let's, let's not get so caught up in ourselves and our own schedules that we forget to love other people well, and especially those who might be outsiders to us. Let's love one another as a church well, especially those, let's love those and be thinking about those for whom this season might be a hard season. How can I be an encouragement to them and love them? And third, let's pray that, that God would fill us with, I love this phrase I read this week, apostolic freedom. Apostolic freedom. Apostolic freedom refers to the kind of supernatural freedom and boldness that the Holy Spirit gave to the apostles even though they were facing spiritual resistance and persecution. It's, it's the freedom that led Paul not to cave to his oppressors, but to speak boldly in love to them. And this is, this is just, I mean, Paul just puts it so well, Galatians 2.20. May God fill us with, with this awareness that we read in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so may, may that, when we dig into that and think about what that implies for who we are in Christ, may that awareness give us this apostolic freedom to tell others about Jesus, to point others about Jesus without fear and trepidation of, of what other people might say or do to us. And may, may this awareness of our identity of union in Christ, united to Christ, may it be greater than our insecurities so that we can gladly welcome and embrace Christians and non-Christians and outsiders from all different backgrounds into our lives and into our gospel communities, into our church. And with thankful hearts, you guys, we have, thank, we have so much to give thankful, thanks for. We have every reason to have hope in this season because we have a resurrected and reigning King Jesus who's alive and with us. 
But let's join the triumph this week, you guys. Join the triumph of the skies as the angelic hosts proclaim, let's join them and say glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for who you are for us. We thank you for being our Lord and our Savior. We thank you that you're primarily the object of our faith before you're the example of our faith because we're saved because of what you did for us and not what we do by any means. I just, Lord, I just pray that you would, uh, Holy Spirit, um, work in our, our lives, uh, fuel our hearts for you, help us to do the work of opening the word, of reading your word that you've spoken to us, Sanctify us by your word, God. Make us more like you. Make the affections of our hearts align with the affections of your heart for your glory, um, for the, the, the well-being of other people around us, for the gospel to be preached so that others can join in the triumph that you have, you have earned through your cross and resurrection. May that be the center of our focus this week. May we just be thinking about that today and this week. Help us to stay focused on you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.